quick warning for listeners, this podcast may get graphic. It is, of course, about the Bible. Welcome to the Brothers Berkeley, a Bible study podcast aimed at responsible reading and application of the Bible. I'm your host, Spencer Berkeley. And I'm your other host, Tyler Berkeley. All right, let's get started. Chapter 7, Cold Silence. Chapters 1 through 6 are assumed to take place during the reign of Josiah. Comparing the style and content of chapter 7 to chapter 26, it is thought that Jeremiah comes to the temple's gate at the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign, around 609 BC. The previous year had been difficult for Judah. The pharaoh Necho had gone north to wage war against Assyria. Josiah took his army north to attack the Egyptian army from the south, but the king of Judah fell in battle. Jehoahaz, Josiah's firstborn, was captured by pharaoh Necho three months later, fighting for the same cause in the same region. It is likely he never entered Jerusalem as king. This is how Judah became a vassal state of Egypt instead of Assyria. The pharaoh appointed Josiah's second son, who he renamed Jehoiakim, as the king of Judah. This story is found in 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 36. Cool. So, any other background or comments? It's really interesting that Josiah serves as this loyal vassal state for Assyria, that he he ends up going up north to attack the Egyptian army. As it's told in those other books, Pharaoh Necho actually sends a messenger to Josiah and says, hey, God told me to do this. God told me to attack Assyria. So you shouldn't be coming against me right now. I'm doing what God wants. Lo and behold, Josiah ends up dying in battle. It's just a strange time in Judah's history where foreign kings are claiming that God is sending them to do things and God's people of Judah are resisting it. But Egypt never ends up taking Jerusalem as a city. They never end up coming against Jerusalem. What the Pharaoh does is capture the king. And that's how the vassal state of Judah or the vassal statehood of Judah transfers to Egypt. This serves as a good historical background for what's possibly going on in the historical Jeremiah's life and in the setting for the historical Jeremiah as he's proclaiming what he's going to say. As we move into chapter 8 in the next episode, there's going to be some repeated material. So this historical setting actually makes sense of that repeated material. At 609, Jeremiah, that's 18 years after Jeremiah has his first proclamation. On the one hand, we have some repetitive material in this book that we're reading straight through. On the other hand, we have 18 years between that material being proclaimed one time and that material being proclaimed in an almost completely different setting. What do we understand is the first proclamation that you're saying happens 18 years prior to another proclamation? Are there certain chapters that we could look to? Are there certain specific ones that we understand as the first proclamation? Or is the text situated chronologically? And so we understand that that first proclamation being, you know, I don't know, chapters one through six or chapter seven, and then the second proclamation being that chapter 26 or what? 
Is there a specific chronology that we understand to this? Or is that just an after-the-fact compilation provided to us by post-exile or exile compilations? As far as I can tell from what I've read, the first six chapters end up being to the Josiah era. The rest, the majority of Jeremiah is Jehoiakim and after. Okay. So Jeremiah has just those first six chapters that kind of go to that earlier kingdom uh, or, or that earlier king. And then Jeremiah ends up having a lot more to say during the rest as, during, the, as the end approaches. Yeah. So during Jehoiakim's reign then. Yeah. Which should also, I think, as far as at least uh, setting up of the text in this chapter then for that transition is understanding that Jeremiah is presenting somebody who is clearly watched and understands the geopolitical situation. Mm. The people of Judah are not living in ignorance towards what's happened. There has been a switch of kingdoms that there are kings that they are a vassal state. They have been at war. They have seen the northern kingdom go through an Assyrian attack, right, and control. We should point out that at least this kind of leads us into an understanding of all that w- that we've already talked about. It's made abundantly clear. There's no mystery in that. Mm. Perhaps just stating that one more time. Jeremiah being a part of this... And Clements kind of talked about that in my reading of chapters 7 and 8 in his commentary. It's just that Jeremiah stands as this representation of the people as far as being a part of what Judah is going to go through and then later being a voice for the representation of people in exile. I might be getting ahead of myself now, but we need to also understand that Jeremiah's observation of what's happening is partially also to say that Judah as a nation understood this and saw it happen. If Jeremiah saw it happen and he's speaking to it, then the rest of Judah also saw it happen. Again, that's a redundant point, but it should be made explicit. So there's no question about where the people stood or their ignorance in that situation. Do you want to move on? Saw you. Chapter 7 begins with a proclamation that seems to hold out hope for the people amending their ways instead of clinging to the temple. But this note of hope may be part of that deceptive word from chapter 4. Like warning a bank robber not to rob banks after they have been arrested, Judah has already failed to change their wicked lifestyle. These words of hope come in the midst of the people refusing to change. The temple is no longer Yahweh's. There's no hope for the temple. It is destined for the same fate as Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant first stayed after Joshua's conquest. The silence between Yahweh and his people begins with this description from verse 13. I spoke to you, making an early start in speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. This comes around the year 609 BC. Ezekiel doesn't actually see his vision of the Shekinah glory leaving the temple until sometime in the 580s. So this is almost 30 years before the Shekinah glory actually leaves the temple. What is the Shekinah glory? Shekinah is the presence, the holy presence of God. And it almost gets impersonated. It's it's the glory of God. Ezekiel sees it and actually goes through a few chapters of the Shekinah leaving the temple and then going through Jerusalem before it leaves hmm. Jerusalem. 
there's no prophetic vision that actually sees it return later in the tradition. Hmm. What you wrote says, begins with a proclamation that seems to hold out hope for a people amending their ways instead of clinging to the temple. I think we've talked about in the past, I know we talked about last episode, the conflation between national identity and uh, Christianity. But there's also this understanding that the temple is going to be destroyed. Perhaps there's a hope, like you said, a hope that the people will be uh, somehow become repentant or rely on God in an earnest way, as opposed to the temple as a symbol of God's presence, that they would actually feel God's presence or be seeking God's presence in a way. It just seems that my whole reading, at least of chapter seven and maybe even of eight, I kind of get them confused in my head because I read them at the same time. All that said, though, it seems as though there's this continual understanding that there may be honest and earnest desires to support the religious understandings of the day. The problem with the religious understandings of the day is that they're sucked into this other worship of other gods and other things. Is it in chapter 7 it talks about like queen of heaven that little bit? Chapter 7 verse 18 it says the children gather sticks, the fathers build the fire, and the mothers knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Clemens goes on to kind of talk about how essentially there's this understanding of Baal worship, where the queen of heaven is this sister, god, I don't know, co... Consort. Consort. Their understanding, and whenever Jeremiah is pointing this out, that the kids go to get the wood, the fathers build the fire, the mothers knead the dough, it gives you this real picture of the whole family being involved in this mm. religious activity. For us, we, we look at it and we go, Baal worship. Well, duh, that's bad. We have this problem where we don't understand that Baal worship is molding that understanding. And that understanding in Baal worship informs their understanding of how they're supposed to serve Yahweh. And in doing so, they have this Baal understanding of how to worship Yahweh. And so Yahweh's like, yeah, I don't want you to serve me like that, though. That's what Yahweh is saying. And yet, Jeremiah does this great job of pointing out the picture of the kids going to get the wood, the husbands building the fire, the, the women kneading the dough. And it becomes this intergenerational family activity that informs a wrong relationship. A symbolism that isn't right relationship with God, or even right understanding about what Yahweh wants. It is fascinating that is that Yahweh is asking for something different than what the religious understanding of the day was. And that even today, when we talk about symbolism in the church, this kind of idolatry that comes with wanting to deify or wanting to hold in sanctity, hold, I don't know. We want to we want to make it sacred. We want to make our, our symbolism sacred and at the same time not worry about people, right? Right. I mean, there's a really easy symbolic gesture that has happened in sporting events around our, our country. Uh, Donald Trump was at his rally either in Tulsa or Arizona. I can't remember which one because they both happen real close together. But there was this call to put people in jail for burning the American flag, which happens to be a violation of First Amendment rights. Like it's already been 
gone through the Supreme Court. They've already decided on this. You are perfectly allowed as long as you're not using the American flag to arson on a building or something. You're perfectly allowed to burn the flag. That is your First Amendment right. But there's this understanding that if somebody burns the flag, well, that's really, really bad. As opposed to any understanding of why people are doing what they're doing. Any understanding of bigger socioeconomic, cultural, whatever problems. At the end of the day, I don't think Jeremiah is saying, well, I don't believe you. I be-. Again, it's not, I, I think you're faking your desire to hold that sacred. It's... No, you're genuine about holding that sacred, and that's not what I asked you to do. That's not who I want you to be. I don't need you to hold the flag sacred to all ends. I don't need you to hold the cross sacred to all ends. I don't need you to hold symbols sacred. It's funny that you mentioned the cross. I've been... Um, is, it, I've been is it funny? <laughs> it's super hilarious that you yeah. mentioned the cross. I've been thinking about uh, recently about how our institution, the institution of the church, becomes that for us, where we identify the institution of the church as the thing that needs protecting, even though Jesus calls us to the cross. That is just as plain a call as go out and make disciples. The fact that the church exists today in America without a hill to die on is a testimony to its falseness, uh, to its falsity of worship. To its symbolism. That's exactly it. We're talking about holding symbolism sacred over the actual mission or the actual understanding of worship, the actual understanding of what you're supposed to be doing in the first place. Right. And let's not forget the temple is something that even God like ordained. A lot of our institutions are not something that God even ordained. They're something that the church ended up deciding on its own to do with denominations, etc. But you can't look at the Vatican and say, oh, that's a, that's filled with a bunch of people looking for a, a hill to die on. That's counter-missional. Do we have anything more to say about this last stanza at all? Anything to say about the silence specifically? Yeah, just that within the relationship between Yahweh and his people, the silence doesn't begin on Yahweh's end. The silence begins with the people ignoring and approaching what Yahweh says with ambivalence. Yeah, being complacent about what what he says. Complacent is a good word. Yeah, Uh, Clements actually addresses that is what what looking at symbols instead of trying to have a relationship looks like, right? Mm. It looks like silence. So Mm. when the people are holding the temple so dear but not Yahweh, that's Mm. what silence looks like. They may be doing what they understand religious acts and rights to be involvement in a religious relationship, but that's not the covenant that Yahweh is asking for. And so whenever they do that and Yahweh responds with anger, frustration, there is this sense in which there's a complacent confidence that they're already doing what they need to be doing. I mean, nowadays we would call it emotional neglect, maybe, uh, within relationship, where if you raised a kid this way, you would feed them, make sure they have clothes and that they're washed and that they have a bed, but you wouldn't really give them toys. You wouldn't really invest in teaching them. But then when they challenged you or when anyone challenged you, you would point to, well, I've done everything that they need. I've supplied everything they need. I've, I've fulfilled my part. 
but you haven't attended to the child. Right. You haven't uh, given your attention to the child. Yahweh tells Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people. Do not raise a cry or prayer for them. And do not make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. The prophet's role was to intercede on God's behalf to the people and the people's behalf to God. But half of that role is gone. There was no righteous intercession to be made on the people's behalf. Silence was better, leaving us to wonder, why send a prophet to people so lost? What do you think? I think when a relationship reaches a certain point, the only thing a faithful partner can do is hold up a mirror and say, this is this is what you're being right now. This is the role you're playing right now. And the hope is that the people will see it and repent of it, even if it is too late for their consequences not to catch up to them. I wonder where that leaves us sometimes at our worst. I was listening to a podcast about a guy who had done research in the nation of Islam and people in the United States that had been perhaps wrongly imprisoned or basically had acted for Muslim rights and people then who had been imprisoned because of that. He went on to say how in prison is they would commit infractions on purpose so that they would get sent to uh, solitary confinement. Apparently, though, it was kind of this tactic that they would use to plug up the solitary confinement so that all these guys would be doing infractions that would send them there and it would get too full. That becomes a non-measure, especially for other groups then. A lot would be said for the same thing for kind of what our role should be whenever we find injustice, perhaps. Maybe sometimes it's not necessarily that we go take to the streets all the time, but by whatever we do, we hold up a mirror to what the problem was, if that makes Mm. sense. I mean, I think that's what a lot of civil rights, just the sit-ins in restaurants and things like that, were a good example of when you look at that, especially whenever you look at it now, you see that that's what's being done in a lot of ways, is a mirror is being held up to the violence and irrationality and, and pure evil of this system, and it's being shown to people through these simple actions. I think there's something to be said here about just what our response might be whenever we see evil in the world. Like, what do we do? I don't know that you're always just going to be able to pray for people to make it happen or have this intercessory situation that's going to somehow make it okay. I wonder what our role should be. I don't know that it's always going to be our role to speak doom and gloom. I don't know. I don't know that it's always going to be our job to provide that mirror. And I don't know that we're always not the people that need that word from Jeremiah to begin with. It does pose questions about who we are to be, who we are to be to each other. And especially whenever we are at our worst, what that looks like. I don't know. What do you think? I think that takes it in a a different direction. Jeremiah ends up saying um, in verse 19, Is it I who they they provoke, says the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own hurt? When you have people who are so bent on self-destruction, even as they claim in sanctimonious fashion to be serving God, at a certain point, 
there's not help for them besides allowing them to find out that the cycle of evil is self-destructive. Right. I think Paul ends up saying that with the congregant who's sleeping with his mother-in-law or something like that in the church. Let him go. Get him out of the church. Hopefully, he will find his situation destructive and be saved afterwards. I think that's where God is reached in Jeremiah. We just had Josiah, this righteous king, who brought on reforms and everything. If his first son was ruling for three months, was sacrificing already to pagan gods. His second son has now been on the throne, and he's sacrificing to pagan gods. It's a backsliding again. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey, and you shall call to them, and they will not answer you. Verse 27 follows a recollection that begins in verse 21. When the Hebrew people were brought out of Egypt before the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, the one thing God asked of them was their listening obedience, and it would go well with them. Over the thousand years since then, they have proved their character. They sacrifice and try to hear Yahweh in all the ways Yahweh is forbidden or explicitly relegated, but they will not listen to Yahweh's prophets, and they will not answer the call to repentance. So this is just a depressing uh, chapter. chapter. <laughs> Pretty much. We can do all that. We can try to talk about application and stuff, but it's hard because there really isn't much you can do with, hey, just don't be like these people. I don't know. Besides asking how you are like these people, how are you like these people? How have we proved our character as people who do not listen, as right. people who do not answer the call? As people who can't handle just the listening obedience of relationship outside of the Torah. That's even greater than the Torah. Just listen, obey, have a genuine relationship with Yahweh. That's it. But they can't even fulfill that. And so they end up in these institutional ways, no matter how, no matter how convinced they are that they're doing what Yahweh has asked of them, a lot of it's cumin and spices. Some of it's explicitly forbidden by Yahweh. I think there are questions that we might be able to ask ourselves. Going back to the first portion that we read, you know, I, I was talking about how Jeremiah paints this picture of the kids getting the wood for the fire, the husbands, you know, preparing the fire, the women kneading the dough and getting it ready, all basically for this uh, religious rite that is a part of Baal worship and the queen of heaven worship that is not relationship with Yahweh whatsoever. But how that informs their understanding of their relationship with Yahweh and how they should treat it. These are institutional, cultural, systematic, all of those words that we kind of throw around, but we don't always... I don't know that we always get to see like the ins and outs of how they work. This is a pretty good example of the fact that they're throwing back to Mount Sinai. They're throwing back to this relationship with Yahweh should have reached a point of many of these institutions or these structures of understanding. They should already be built in many ways. They should already be a part of life, but instead there's this other mode of working, which is Baal worship. 
And I, I think there's something we, we could ask ourselves at least, which is in which ways are we, and we as the church, I suppose, which ways are we celebrating something that is not relationship with God, mm. but we are understanding that ways of, as a way of being Christian, or we are understanding that a way of being a model citizen, a model father, mother, a student, a model worker, a model whatever. A good example would be whenever you hear somebody say, well, it was illegal. Mm. And it's something that, yes, is a form of cultural understanding. It's informed by our systems and our laws. Is that really relationship with God when we take that, when we take the law further than we understand our relationship with God? And I think there are situations where we have to say, we're obeying the law. We've obeyed the law, but we've still not had relationship. In similar ways, we're doing what we understand to be correct as a society, as people a part of that society, as a church that works inside that society. We have to ask ourselves, is this just Baal worship at some point? The reality is you can buy a house in the suburbs, have a low crime rate in your area, and go to your church and be a part of your job and all those things, but ignoring the greater pain around you just because you're a model citizen. I, I think this is something that should cause us, and perhaps this is me projecting it on, and I'll, I'll admit that if I'm projecting this on, that's fine. It's our podcast. I don't mean to, but I do think there are questions right now, at least that I'm struggling with, about there's been all this talk of racial injustice. I know my wife's trying to work through it. Our church is trying to work through it. Like I'm constantly having conversations with people around me about it. And there's this discussion that is more or less, how do we participate in changing our society? There is some level where I read this and I go, if we're going to change our society, it happens in relationship with God. We have to not just ask ourselves, how do we make things more equal for minority groups? Not just how do we make sure that black and brown people, LGBTQ, those who have larger problems, whether it be mental, whether it be economic, whether it be you know other structural problems, the incarceration state that we have going on, whatever it might be. I think there is a call from what we're seeing here to say, your understanding in your society is not going to be good enough. And that's kind of what we ended on last week was Tyler Berkeley is not calling for an all lives matter response to black lives matter. Tyler Berkeley is calling for more than that. And I think at least this gives us a glimpse into what a more than that might look like. That we do need to understand that Judah, in a lot of ways, thought they were participating in what religious activities should be, but they weren't participating in relationship with Yahweh. The silence between Yahweh and his people is not restful. The prose at the end of chapter 7, ending in chapter 8, verse 3, leads us to believe the people, under Jehoiakim's rule, have rebuilt the altar to Molech and Topheth, the valley of Hinnom. At that altar, they burn their children, which Yahweh did not command, nor did it enter his imagination. Though they make sacrifices of their children to the God of war and fire, it only brings more war and fire upon them. The graves will overflow with the dead, and even the bones of the wicked will not be allowed to rest. Only the scavenging beasts and birds will break the cold silence quickly settling over Jerusalem. So what do you think? This book is dark. 
Yeah. Metal. Anything? I think this illustrates why the Valley of Hinnom, the Gehenna, ends up being the picture of hell in the New Testament. It's not just that when Jerusalem is cleaned, all that is defiled and wrong gets thrown into this valley. It's also the place where misguided attempts to gain Yahweh's favor that cost you your children are found. It's that place too. It's the place that brings complete destruction upon you. And Yahweh doesn't have to do anything about it for it to do that. There's nothing that Yahweh has to do when you're killing your children on the altar to the God of war and fire. All he has to do is let you deal with the God of war and fire. And this wickedness, this evil, we've been talking about demonstrable ways that our institutions mislead us when we put our faith in them and we confuse the all worship with worshiping Yahweh in a relationship with Yahweh. We've mentioned some, some of the racism and the systemic racism. There are also just the systemic things that good people in our culture uphold. They just disagree with how they're abused, but they're the same system. It's all a system of greed. It's all a system of power and abusing and not looking out for your neighbor and not looking for ways to love one another. The children who are gathering wood are the children who are getting sacrificed on the altar. There's not a point where this system becomes less vile. It's all vile. It's all leading to this problem. It's all self-destructive. I think that's something that Yahweh has to leave in cold silence. So Clements, he makes his observations about how three different types of death are noted. There's going to be death, obviously, through infant sacrifice, but then there's also those dying in battle. But then there's also the death of basically the leading citizens. So just like you're saying, it's all bad. It's not like the death of sacrificing the children, the infants, is separate from the battlefield and from the leadership. There's death throughout. It all leads to that. He goes on to say, The irony of the opposition of what Yahweh is asking for compared to what they're doing is that they're doing all these things to provide life. That's the idea, is that we're going to sacrifice our firstborn, we're going to make sure that we're militarily sound, we're going to make sure that our leadership is X, Y, and Z telling us to do all these things, and it's all an effort to preserve the system, to preserve the powers that be, to make sure that we're okay, and it leads to death. It's all this idea that we're going to preserve life, but you're killing innocent children, you're leading yourself into war and your leadership, the, even the people that are supposed to be speaking against that, are not. And yet Yahweh's not asking this from you. You're providing it for yourself. You're making it what you think is going to give you life. And that's not what Yahweh's asking at all. Everything you're doing to provide for yourself, to provide life for yourself, is bringing you death. And Yahweh is asking something completely different, and you're ignoring it. Beside this section, I wrote military-industrial complex, because, yeah, I think there is a sense in which I think it's pretty meaningful to think about the ways we, as a country, try and preserve power, and how most people in this country revere and hold sacred 
soldiers, the troops, military, and yet how there are a lot of people that give their lives for the system as well. And then at the same time, like, there's this separation of the reality for other countries and innocent people in other countries and what that looks like. I mean, it really is this creation of a certain valley of Hinnom in many, many places. This religious valorism, this religious just blind, I don't know, concession towards the needs of the military. I think there's this desire to not get too political, but uh, screw that because there are people dying and there are people valorizing what we do, not knowing about the death. The president literally said, yeah, I moved the troops from one place, but it's okay. They are guarding the oil fields. Let's just be clear whenever we're talking about certain aspects of our military. We are okay with putting people in danger and killing other people and like controlling certain areas of the world for our perceived protection of our wealth, of our quote unquote freedoms. And we have to ask questions about that. Just explicitly, we have to. We have to ask ourselves, is our reliance on the military for economic reasons, for even like national security reasons? Are those what Yahweh is asking us to do? Is that what God's asking us to do? I look at a cross and I certainly don't think so. I would agree with that. On the other hand, we call this a systemic problem. On the other hand, you have the average worker, the even the average college graduate who will graduate and have to find a job, have to find work. The job that you can find holds very little meaning, doesn't connect you to others most of the time doesn't connect you to the ecosystems of the world. It separates you from those things that hold meaning and, and quality and value. And so on the one hand, yes, we have this military industrial complex. But on the other hand, just in our day to day, we have a lack of meaningful work and a lack of connection with anything that is purposeful and brings value to life. One of the most infuriating things I've ever heard is people talking about if, if they stop paying you a paycheck, would you continue to work here or, or would you go to work tomorrow? The answer for me has always been no, because that's why I go to work. I go to work for an imaginary number that's value is constantly dropping because of systems that I don't understand and that are beyond my control for causes that I don't believe in. We're talking about several different self-defeating systems here that influence all of our culture and all of our lives. It's not just a military industrial complex. It's everything. I think you're right. I think there are, there are a multitude of ways in which, in which the point is not relationship with Yahweh. Put it that way. In which the whole meaning of it is not to have a relationship with Yahweh. That is understandable in a pluralistic society with multiple values and what that makes sense. I guess we should then bring it back to the church at least. At least back to the same people that are going to espouse similar values. We can critique the United States. We can critique our systems and all that. That makes sense. We can critique capitalism. <laughs> It's the painful reality that even the temple is being used as a misrepresentation of what true 
relationship with Yahweh is. Even the temple itself, where Yahweh is supposed to reside, is being used as this falsity that will protect them while they are sacrificing their children and engaging in war and being led blindly by people who want their own ends met. We definitely have to ask ourselves the same thing, the same question. And perhaps if we can't say it, if you're listening and you're offended by military industrial complex type talk, then let's bring it home to the church, right? Let's bring it home to the institutions that are supposed to be representing relationship with God and actively involved in that, right? So I'll just throw this out there. Trump's last rally was at a mega church in Arizona. In part, I guess I do say. Are we, as the church, so a part of this system as well? I don't know if you can separate the two completely. Maybe that's the last vestige of hope, is maybe at least my people being Yahweh speaking or God speaking or Christ being, maybe at least the people who are the ones that are calling on my name, maybe at least they would actually seek relationship with God mm. instead of just being a part of the system in a part of the culture and world that is whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I think we should end this episode with a note of uh, hopelessness. And um, Great. That'll look... Ah, man, people love that. It occurs to me that in verse 4, Jeremiah says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. What occurs to me is Jeremiah might be, if we were going to make a not one-to-one comparison, Jeremiah, Jeremiah might say, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is my father's world. What he's saying is, you have defiled it. You have so defiled it that God isn't here, that you have taken the world from him, that you have taken the temple from him. God isn't going to be here for you. Tohu bahu. Tohu bahu. Thanks for listening to the Brothers Berkeley, a Bible study podcast. Remember, you can contact us at thebrothersberkeley at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S-B-E-R-K-L-E-Y at gmail.com. Until next time, be responsible in your reading and application. Applications.